We have wandered in the um, wilderness of topical sermons for the last few weeks, but we have made our way home through uh, to the book of, of which we've been looking at, the book of Acts. It's home. Our home indeed is the scriptures and going through it uh, chapter by chapter. I'm not as like every verse and unpacking every verse, but the themes of each chapter or at least one of the themes of each chapter we try to touch on throughout it. Um, it's always good to read through the Word of God and to study it, and that's what we're doing um, for the most part in this church, just, just to take the diet of God's Word. We are, we are in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, and let me just um, touch on this. This is, this is totally off the cuff, but it's important for us to realize, because this is a very important passage for church government, you might not realize this. Now, I'm not going to be touching on church government at all, but I want you to know church government is incredibly important, and the way that the church is structured does play a part in the way that the people experience the truths of Scripture. And so one of the most beautiful things that I love about the Presbyterian church, of which this church bases its government off of is is many of the principles in Acts chapter 15 are established in Presbyterian government structures. And it's a really helpful thing where you have elders from different regions coming together and making a decision, a theological decision on this topic and saying, this is what we believe. So it's important. I want you to know that. I, I realize that, that that is something that I'm not going to be touching on, but it is important for you to know. Um, we're going to be touching on a far more, I think, important topic that this text leads us to. You'll see that in just a short moment. But let's read it before we really get into that. So Acts chapter 15, 1 through 21, hear now the word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Well, let me just real high. This is, this is in Antioch. They, they came down from Judea, which is actually south of where they lived. It was just higher. It came down to Antioch, which was, was on the northern part of it. Jerusalem was higher. So they came down. And now they're in Antioch where, where Paul and Barnabas were. That's where they left off their last missionary journey. So these men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that is the people in the church of Antioch, this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting to God to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Look, you might not like to fight. You might despise conflict and strong motions that are often tied to them with all parts of your being. You, you, you want to avoid fighting and conflict at every possible turning point. But here's the truth. There are some fights worth having. Do you know that? There are some fights worth having. Last year, we watched Russia move into Ukraine. And to the Ukrainians, it was worth the fight to push back on the Russians who were coming to take their territory. When Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and killed thousands of servicemen and women in, in Pearl Harbor, it was worth it to the families and to the Americans who lost loved ones to fight back. Friends, you might not like fighting. I don't like it. But some fights are worth having. And this morning, I want to provoke a fight that perhaps you have been avoiding for a long time, a fight that has been taken to you and has beaten you over. It is a fight for your soul. I, I'm here to say, if there's a fight worth having, the fight that's worth having more than any other fight is the fight for your soul. And Acts 15 puts right before us a fight for the soul. What is the primary question Acts 15 is trying to address? You see it in verse 1. What must one do to be saved? The entire Acts 15, 1 through 21, is addressing this particular question. And we see these men having a fight over the very question. Of course, there is great debate in this. We don't get... One side of the debate, but certainly based off of Paul's encounter with these people who had come down from Judea and said, you need to be circumcised if you are going to be saved. And in verse 3, we said there's no small dissension and debate. There is a great debate. Now, what's the nature of this debate? Here's, in essence, the nature of the debate, the fight for your soul. And I'm going to make it very pertinent into your life. And I'm going to show you how it, it rages in your life just like it does in mine. If you want to be saved, it's Jesus plus something else. You believe in Jesus, 
But to these people, it was you circumcise, you get circumcised according to the custom of Moses' law. If you want to be saved, you need to add something to your faith. It's faith plus a lot of these works. Now, now let me apply this to your life because I know a lot of you guys, well, you've been in some great churches, especially this one where you learn such great theology all the time. Amen to that, right? No, even in churches where there's great truth, like these lies come in. And I think that if we think about this in just a second, like just, just take Acts 15 from a whole. You have these Pharisees and these Judaizers, these people who are saying it's Jesus plus something. They're coming to Antioch, and then they're going to the church in Jerusalem. They're everywhere. These are solid churches. I want you to realize they can be in the places where, the, where there's orthodox truth. They're everywhere. And so even in here, there's probably people going, it's Jesus plus something. You know that, right? Really? There are people in here who think that their sin disqualifies them from God himself. If you were a Christian, you would have never looked at that thing. If you were a Christian, you would have never done that. If you were a Christian, you would be far longer in your faith and in your belief and in the moral life that comes from a Christian, you would be farther along. Anytime there is this strong doubt that creeps into our mind, oh, if, if, oh, am I a Christian? This, this debate of like, oh, because of your, your moralistic or your failure to keep the law, this is the fight. And many of you, including myself in my life, have been taking it on the chin from these Judaizers and Pharisees for far too long. So I'm bringing the fight to you. But here's the thing. I ain't fighting. I ain't going to fight. I'm just going to let Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and James do the fighting for us. Because here's what I want more than anything. I want for you and I want for me. I want those Pharisees and Judaizers, whatever, whoever says this in your mind, I want them not down on the ground that you might believe the truth. And that you might say, this fight need not be fought anymore. So let's enter the ring. Let's enter the ring and have this fight once for all. That that voice, that Judaizer in your mind might be knocked to the ground. And I've got some heavyweight fighters coming to this mix, okay? The first heavyweight fighter coming to this fight is none other than Peter. Peter. And what we're going to see from Peter is he packs not only a mean punch, he packs mean punches. So let's look at this first fighter, Peter, as he's punching these Judaizers down on the ground. And what you're going to see is Peter's punches, there's four of them, are indeed going to be the thing that pretty much knocks it down on the ground so that we don't have to fight this battle anymore. Peter's punches. Let's look at this. Peter stands up in the midst of this debate where these, there's Pharisees and these Judaizers, and there's this debate. And, of course, when Peter stands up, it's like game over, right? I mean, this is Evander Holyfield, Muhammad Ali. This is, this is the dude, okay? And he does four things, his four punches. The first punch that he throws Peter establishes his authority. Look at verse 7. He says this, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He said, it's me. 
I'm him. I'm the one God has chosen to be the authority on this subject, whether the Gentiles are in to the gospel or out of the gospel. I'm the guy. And what Peter's referring to is the encounter that he had while on top of the roof uh, with God, bringing down this uh, carpet of, of unholy foods. And the, and the Lord said, eat. And, and, and Peter's like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. And this, this whole affair where, where the Lord three times says, eat these foods, eat these foods. And the whole point of this would be the Gentiles are now welcomed in. And then shortly thereafter, three men from Cornelius come and knock on the door. You, you remember this story. We, we study this in Acts 10, right? So, so he, he, he's the one that experienced this. This is, this is the guy. Peter's first punch says, listen, I'm the authoritative voice on this subject. He establishes authority. That's the first punch that he throws. But what's the second punch that he throws? You're going to see this. The second punch that Peter throws is that he explains what's happened. This, of course, is when he reminds these people in verse 8, saying this, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that is the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter says to them, look, this is what happened. And I've already attested this to you in, in Acts 11. And you proclaimed, and I remember this. He didn't say this. But you proclaimed then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's Acts chapter 11, verse 18. They'd already had this fight. But he's reminding them once again. He's explaining to them what had already happened, that God's spirit had come to these Gentiles, people who were previously seen as filthy and dirty and not acceptable to God. These people now have the Holy Spirit, and their hearts are cleansed. So he establishes his authority. He explains what happened to them. And then the third punch, and this is, this is like a, this is, guys, this is the, this is the upper, what is it, uppercut. Wow. This is the uppercut. This is the uppercut. Look at the uppercut. He exploits the inconsistencies of the Judaizers. Look what he says in verse 10. This is heavy stuff. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you putting God to the test? Do you know who put God to the test? The Israelites and those who put God to the test while they were leaving Egypt, they died. Do you know who else put God to the test? Satan in the wilderness. He put Jesus to the test. And look what Peter's doing here. He's saying, you are putting God to the test. But he explains what he means by this. He explains, you're placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What is this yoke? What is the yoke? It is the requirement that if you are circumcised, you must keep every part of the law of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there cannot be one moment where you veer away. You shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. And you better not ever, ever veer away from that either. You know, it's Paul who unpacks this a little bit in Romans 2, 25. He says, hey, circumcision, the, the, the act of cutting the foreskin, it's of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your, uncircumc your circumcision becomes 
uncircumcision. This is their understanding that the, the yoke in which, with, which these Judaizers were trying to put on, you cannot keep it. You've never been able to keep it. And, and, and I haven't been able to keep it. He's saying that. This is inconsistent. You know these things Peter's saying to them. And the uppercut lands. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, Paul will go on to say. By the spirit, not by the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision means something far more than what these religious, moralistic principles that these people are trying to establish. So he's given them a good one punch, establishing his authority. He follows it up with another one, recounting the story of how God has moved toward the Gentile. Then he finishes, not finishes, then he gives them a good uppercut saying, you're inconsistent with your logic of the truth. It's not possible what you're trying to establish. You're trying to bring them back to something that's not possible. But finally... His fourth and final punch, I think, leaves these Judaizers and many others staggering. And this fourth punch, Peter explains the truth. Peter, in verse 11, says this. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, Friends, here we have the answer to our question, what must one do to be saved? The answer is nothing. There is nothing we do to be saved. It is all conditioned upon the grace of the Lord Jesus that you would receive it, though. That you would believe that it is nothing that you do that merits God's salvation. Salvation is is by grace, not what you do. Let me take you back to the voice in your head, those voices that, that, can, that can trip all of us up, those voices that said you should be farther along in your faith if you really believed. What is this saying? It is at its heart conditioned upon you. You, not God. There's a phrase, and I think many of us know this, we are saved by grace, but here's the second part of the phrase that we don't believe in, but we're sanctified by hustle. Saved by grace, sanctified by hustle. We're saved by grace. We're put in the family. Now we got to get to work. That's right, right? No. You're saved by grace and you're sanctified by grace. It is God's work in you. You shall be saved by grace. The Judaizers, the whisperer, is stumbling back. Peter checks out of the ring, and in comes none other than Paul. Oh, great. You faced Evander Holyfield, and now Muhammad Ali comes in, and you're supposed to go again? Well, that's what happens. And of course, Barnabas is with Paul. They're kind of a tandem. But we don't get as much detail from these guys. But man, do they push. Paul's push to this Judaizer in our life is quite profound. Look at verse 12. And I think you can see how everyone is, is kind of startled by what Peter says. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You know, Peter's spoken and he explained how he had seen God work through Cornelius and the Gentiles. But now Paul and Barnabas come up and holy moly, this is nuts. They begin talking about how God is working in them to the Gentiles. 
Paul pushes back on these Judaizers saying, look, there's incredible signs and wonders that I have seen with the Gentiles. Now, I want you to know, you know, to us, this signs and wonders is kind of like a, you know, it goes in one ear, out the other. We understand what it is. But to the Jews, the Jews who'd be reading Luke's account of what's happening, I, I think they would go, whoa, signs and wonders. What's happening here? Signs and wonders was a phrase that was often associated with the prophets. And there's a, a group of prophets that were really well known for incredible signs and wonders. Perhaps you know these prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha were, were prophets in the Old Testament who were often doing incredible things. You can read about it in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, stuff that'll blow your mind. It's one of the only times you see in the Old Testament things that are strange and weird. But here's something that is so fascinating about Elijah and Elisha. Who did they do signs and wonders to? Who? They did it to the Gentiles. Jesus, when he's talking in Luke chapter 4, actually takes this. Luke 4, 25 through 27. These are the words of Jesus. Listen to him. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You know where Sidon was? Outside of Israel. Signs and wonders done to a Gentile. And then Jesus continues, verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. What is Paul and Barnabas doing when they're relating to them the signs and wonders that took place? We, we kind of seen this in the Old Testament. That God is moving towards Gentiles, that it's not conditioned upon circumcision, but that the signs and wonders done to Gentiles that we have seen, oh, God is moving towards them. This is exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing. Indeed, they saw incredible signs and wonders in their missionary journeys, in their first missionary journeys. They saw the punishment of Bar-Jesus with blindness in Paphos. They saw numerous signs and wonders done in the city of Iconium, Acts 14.3. In Lystra, they saw a man who was lame from birth starting to walk, Acts 14.10. These men saw signs and wonders done among the Gentiles. And what they concluded was that God, once again, was moving towards Gentiles. And it was not based off of circumcision or obedience to the law. It was based on his grace. Paul pushes that Judaizer, that Pharisee, that whispers in our net down on the ground. But there's one more. One more giant of the faith that comes into the ring. Peter and Paul, they've checked out, and in comes James, the brother of Jesus. And what James does is he jabs this Pharisee Judaizer down on the ground once and for all. Now, what does he do? Well, let me, let me say this. There's one character in the New Testament that does trip us up when it regards to salvation. And who is it? It is James, is it not? Faith without works is dead. James wrote that, right? But look what side James is on in this debate. 
What I want you to do is read James 2 a little differently this time after you read this. We see which side of the debate James is on. And he jabs at the Pharisees and the Judaizers who are wanting to add to the faith. Look at what he says. He immediately goes, he, he agrees first with Peter, with Simeon, how that, how that God first visited the Gentiles through him. But then, then he takes it to the Old Testament. And this is what we have to see. James roots this debate in scripture, in the Old Testament. And in verse 15, he quotes Amos 9, 11 through 12. And he says this. And with, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, it is just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Paul looks back, or Paul, James looks back at Amos and says, look, it's been in the scriptures the whole time that this was going to happen. And what does he conclude? Verse 19, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble them. The jab of James knocks the Pharisee out once and for all. I might be getting this story a bit wrong. Some of the details are fuzzy and hazy, but the story is quite profound. And if my friend Ray ever listens to this story, he can correct me. But for the time being, I'm just going to share this story of my friend Ray. Ray was a feisty young boy, the youngest of five brothers. Everything he wanted in his life, he had to scrape and claw for with those older brothers. Can you imagine the fighting that would take place in a family of five boys? The Dimnas might get that a little bit. If there's a family that gets it, it's the Dimnas with their boys. Teddy, this might be just like you, buddy. I hear you. And it was hard for Ray to be the youngest of five, especially on days when he'd have to walk back from school all on his own. You see, Ray had to walk home from school, and one of the houses that he passed by each and every day was the neighborhood bully named Billy. And every time Ray would walk home from school, Billy would do, you know, say something, do something that would really make Ray incredibly scared. And one day, Billy got so mad or whatever, he's picking on Ray so much that he actually got physical. I don't know what he did, but I can imagine him putting him in a headlock, giving him a noogie, maybe pushing him to the ground, laughing at him and whatnot. And my friend Ray, young little kid at the time, was deeply, deeply scared. And he comes crying into his, his family's garage, and there, for the sake of this story, I don't know if this is true, but for the sake of this story, there are three brothers, three of his brothers in the garage, and they say Ray crying. And Ray is weeping. He's scared out of his mind. And his brothers, who probably picked on him and punched him and get, you know, goaded him and all those things, they're like, what happened, Ray? And he, he's like, it scared me. And those three brothers, they're like, boom. And they walk down to Billy's house. And they do what old brothers need to do. Needless to say, Billy never picked on Ray ever again. Those boys took the fight to him. It's a perfect picture of so many of us who have been beat up time and time again by this idea that we need to add something to our faith to be saved. It's like the Judaizers and Pharisees. Yeah, if this, then that. If only. If only you've read more. 
If only you look less at that, and you'd be saved. What we see in these awesome characters, these mighty heavyweights of the faith, is they take the fight to those Pharisees and knock them down on the ground again. And knock them down so that you might believe that salvation is by grace, not according to anything you do. Oh, that the fight that resides in your mind would be done today. And that you would know the great joy and freedom that comes from God's favor and kindness, not because of something you've done, but because what he has done. This is what Peter, this is what Paul and Barnabas, this is what James is trying to convince us of. The fight is over, guys. You can walk by Billy's house again and not fear. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we give thanks for the great brothers of the faith, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James, who with great courage and wisdom, insight from the Holy Spirit, spoke truth into the lives of many. The truth of it, Lord, though, is that many of us have fallen victim to the very debate that they waged. We have failed to believe the very truth of their words, and we've con concluded, oh, I have to be better. <laughs> I have to do this. I have to, or I'm not going to be saved. But your word reminds us that it is by your grace, not according to us. And for that, we praise you. What a glorious gospel we have. It is indeed good news. It sets us free to be your children, to walk by the dark and scary places of our life and know you have our back. Lord, what a great gospel this is, that it would seep deep into our hearts, that we might believe that indeed salvation is by grace. Amen.